G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you on this mildly auspicious occasion. I'll tell you what, it is good to be with you, Dad. It's always good to be with you, but it feels like a bit of a special occasion today because we've made 50 episodes. We've hit the half century today, and I'll tell you what, there were some times there where I weren't sure that we'd make it, but I'm so glad that we have. Absolutely. Same here, Rowan. And yes, with with your interest in sport, well, mine as well, it, it seems quite significant, doesn't it, a half century? Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the number one thing that they tell you about the half century is you've got to knuckle in and push on to the century. So we're uh, in no sign of slowing down soon. But it is good, I think, to, you know, look back and, and yeah, I suppose, celebrate a couple of things that we have done and, and touch on some of the, the things that we have covered on the podcast that we've both really enjoyed. Yes, so it's not like raising a little cricket bat, but what, raise a pen, raise a microphone, (laughs) I don't know, something will raise something anyway, good. Exactly. So, Dad, we're going to have a bit of a different episode today. We're going to be taking a little bit of a look back at the podcast in terms of where we've come from and some of the topics that we've, I suppose, found the most helpful for us and also for our clients here at the practice. So I'm very much looking forward to taking that opportunity because it just feels like so long ago since we did start the podcast, doesn't it? Yes, well, I suppose it was right back at the start of the pandemic, wasn't it? Which was a key motivation for us getting going. We thought, well, everyone's dealing with some genuine adversity. And it started off with lockdowns, uncertainty about how things would be, whether people are going to get ill, whether people are going to be able to keep their jobs, whether we're going to be able to operate as a psychology practice as we had done. And so everybody around the world was dealing with a really challenging, unknown situation. And we thought, well, why not look to make a podcast, which I suppose we've been considering anyway, but why don't we base it on applying positive psychology principles, so drawing on a science of well-being to help deal with the adversity of managing through a pandemic? And so that's how we started off. And it is just bizarre to look back and think now and also I suppose to think it I think how far we've come even collectively as a society in terms of talking about mental health in terms of maybe gaining some strategies about mental health there's not anyone in the world really who hasn't had to think pretty hard about what their own personal recipe about mental health is over the last 18 months or so and that's where I feel quite lucky that we've been in this situation in terms of we've been able to I suppose arm ourselves with a few strategies and and this probably you know it's a little bit more appropriate for me, Dad, in terms of maybe not having studied psychology, but throughout, you know, the last 18 months, there have been so many challenges. And for me, it's highlighted the, obviously, the benefit in, in this sort of information, but just going through it as we have throughout the pandemic, I really feel that, yeah, it, it's certainly given me, anyway, a, a lot more tools than I would have had to deal with otherwise. What strikes me is how we found that the technology, doing a podcast, could be massively helpful when we look at, say, mental health services as well. So in running a psychology practice, as I said, we had this question about whether we'd be able to continue in any usual way. For six months last year, we had no face-to-face contact with any client of our practice. But the fact that we'd started up a podcast that related to psychological principles, we thought, well, wait a minute, here's a way of making information more accessible also to our clients that we hope would be relevant to the wider community. And so where we normally would have had, say, tip sheets 
on issues related to trauma or depression or ways of dealing with panic or things like that, we actually dramatically added to our number of tip sheets, partly based on the psych spills topics we were covering. But we thought if people also had access to a podcast, as well as often having handouts, clinical handouts related to that topic, maybe it would also bolster the psychological services that we were offering because people would have a Zoom session which was very unusual in psychology for people to meet their psychologist over a computer screen. And fortunately, that worked way better than we thought. But the idea was that people could have their therapy session, which would go for, say, 50 minutes or an hour, over a computer screen, and then we could add different podcasts or clinical handouts to send to people. But the podcast partly evolved to be like an adjunct to therapy and so over the last 50 episodes we've covered a very wide range of the kind of clinical issues that will tend to come up obsessive compulsive disorder dissociative disorders in trauma certainly depression worry anxiety grief a whole range of things that come up and so the podcast itself has encouraged us to expand our range of resources or materials and it's been so satisfying getting the feedback from clients about how helpful they've found that and it's been very motivating for us to keep on developing these resources. Absolutely and I think it, it's also interesting to look back now and, and as you say the podcast kind of evolved over time but where it started in its initial phase was kind of just talking about the character strengths. We got together and we thought that we'd be able to create this overwhelmingly positive podcast that would be this source of positivity and inspiration for everyone. And after talking about the character strengths for about two episodes, we thought, hold on, I think we've kind of covered a fair bit of it off here. And also, with everything that's going on, there maybe is a little bit more substantial mental health information that is needed for people with everything that was happening throughout the pandemic. But I do find it funny to look back and think, you know, we we did just think we could get together and just talk about the character strengths for so long. Yes. And so that is such an important part of positive psychology, looking at the best in us, identifying our personality attributes that when we act on those attributes, we tend to feel energised, we tend to be more effective in what we're doing. So anybody who's listened to the podcast likely has heard us refer to the character strengths in many of the later episodes. But if people haven't done this before now, we would encourage anybody to look back at the first episode and look at that exercise about how to identify what your top character strengths are. It's such a worthwhile thing in positive psychology. But then also looking at, say, mindsets, positive mindsets that can help, different ways of engaging in activities that can energise us or motivate us. Basically, our podcast evolved more to a field of positive psychology that we might call positive psychotherapy. So what positive psychotherapy is, is you take the existing field of cognitive behavioural therapy and other forms of psychotherapy that are useful to people and proven, all sorts of research showing how that can help with anxiety, depression, trauma reactions, but you frame those therapies and those interventions within the optimistic framework of positive psychology. So we also think in terms of character strengths, and being in a state of flow because we're engaged in what we're doing in terms of post-traumatic growth that we'll come back to later on. So couching the common interventions that we would use in a psychology practice, but as we do here, within that philosophy, that optimistic philosophy of positive psychology. And so we had a huge resource 
of topics and materials to address because that's been the mainstay of our practice. Well, for 25 years, we've been practicing and drawing on those mainstream clinical skills, but to explicitly incorporate that within a positive psychology framework. Well, the interesting thing for me in terms of starting where we did with the character strengths and starting with, I suppose, a more explicit form of positive psychology in some ways is that having done the podcast for as long as we have now, you come to some sort of realisation, in my head anyway, that on some level it's kind of all connected in terms of it's not as if these topics aren't relevant to each other. It's not as if they're, I suppose, isolated from each other in terms of not being connected in that way. But I suppose just to exemplify that for myself, Dad, just a a little example of how this has worked out for me. For our most recent podcast, we spoke about some things to do with quantum physics and all this sort of stuff. And, And one of the things that really came out for me in that episode was that we have so much choice over where we put our focus. And that's been a theme throughout many of the podcast episodes in terms of we have a bit more choice in a situation in terms of whether we focus on the positive or the negative in a situation. And one thing that I've come to I suppose realize over the the last few weeks is just the extent to which I've relied on my character strengths throughout this whole time and for me for example the number one character strength you know that I that I had on the test was perspective and one of the greatest activities that I've found to, to give me the most benefit throughout the pandemic is walking up to the shrine in Melbourne, the Shrine of Remembrance, and, and just taking five minutes to walk around the shrine. You, you look at the eternal flame, and there's this real feeling of, I suppose, deference to those who've come before you, a real feeling of, of reverence for all those who the shrine is about. And to me, that just completely recontextualizes everything that we've been going through in terms of you can get caught in looking at the immediacy of things, I think, in terms of there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable about our situation. But I think if we walk through things to this degree, to the point where we can think about things for ourselves and we can identify a few of, whether it be our own strengths or a few things that are going to get us by in some ways, that are going to allow us to be a little bit more positive in terms of where we put our attention, to me, that's just something that, that A, has been so beneficial for me, but also, I suppose, as we go back and look back, you understand a little bit about how we've kind of walked through the process of developing some of this sort of stuff. And for me, it's been going back and looking at some of this sort of stuff that allows you to see how it comes together a little bit more and I suppose makes a little bit more tangible what we do have at our fingertips to, to manage with everything that's going on. It's interesting how you really highlight that aspect of where you pay attention. Because when I think of the central themes of psychology and the range of topics that we would have covered, I'd in some ways be thinking more in terms of, say, the hero's journey, where you go along and things might seem okay, then something's unsettling, things can really feel out of control, and then there's something that happens where you can shift things a bit or turn things around a bit, and then you get some kind of partial solution even that you can go on with. That hero's journey, to me, is a central theme. But when you're drawing out that idea of what we pay attention to, in a sense, that's such a core of positive psychology. When we're in circumstances, well, I suppose it's partly like looking at the glasses half full or half empty, that optimism way of looking at it. But another thing I recognise in what you're saying is that a whole lot of mental health models developed initially out of hypnosis. Hypnosis was one of the first mental health or psychological models. If there's anything that would sum up hypnosis, it's paying attention with intention. In other words, if people are looking to feel better in some way, 
Imagine a time in the past where you felt calm or imagine a time in the past where you felt confident. Even, say, in sporting circles, remember a time when you really achieved something, when people are on a high diving board in the Olympics, they're practising some kind of relatively perfect routine to go through. They're paying attention with intention to something that works for them. And so actually a whole lot of what we would have covered in these different episodes for obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety and worry, depression, things like that, it's where you pay your attention. So part of it's accepting the difficulty in the first place, accepting that we're struggling. Fair enough, we've got reasons to struggle. And yet there are some things that we can do or some things that we can choose to focus on and some ways we might choose to act that can help us somewhat manage through that difficult experience. So a lot of it is about paying attention rather than, in a sense, giving in to helplessness or fear. It's having a way of thinking, wait a minute, I am struggling, this is difficult, but maybe at least I can do this, or maybe I can try that, or maybe here's another strategy or a technique that I've come across in a YouTube clip, in a clinical handout. In a podcast episode, yes, there's something here that I can try and apply and see how that goes. And even if it goes half well, or even better, three quarters well, then maybe I can build a bit on that. Partly it's about having even small hopes. Partly it's about having some kind of direction that we can go in. But if we're looking forward with some kind of hope or positivity, or at least giving something a go, that in itself gives us a sense of agency, something that we talked about in a recent episode as well. There's something I can do that might make a difference. And that attitude, even if we're struggling, can make a real difference. So I think that you've got onto something central here. Part of our podcast episodes, all of them, something to do with how we pay attention. And I think as well, that's absolutely true. And and I think it is so important, as you say, to set that intention in a certain way. But the other thing that I suppose going through this information has highlighted to me in some ways, is I suppose just how relevant it is to absolutely everyone in some way. And dad, one uh, TV show that I've been watching recently on Netflix is a show called Animal Kingdom. And it's a brilliant show. You know, it's not one for the kiddies, but uh, it's got some pretty sinister elements to it, but really interesting, partly in a psychological sense. And I suppose not to give anything away about the show, but there's these characters in the show that act in ways that are, you know, as I say, incredibly sinister, not ways that, you know, I would certainly ever, you know, hope to act in my life or any of this sort of stuff, just some some properly kind of bad things. But you go through the show and you realise it's actually no one's fault that they're in this situation. People may have had a certain upbringing where you think, gosh, you know, anyone in that situation as a kid would respond in that way. You know, I think back to the dissociation episode, how much, I suppose, empathy I gained for people who maybe had a, a tough upbringing, which led to maybe even some personality difficulties down the road. But for me, there's so much of, whether it be the issues in society, the issues that people have, they all come back to mental health on some level and I think going through this sort of stuff it allows you to feel so much more empathy for others it allows you to understand in some ways maybe that the second and third I suppose level of your actions whether it be anger or irritability quite often there's something a little bit at the level below and if we can identify these things then we have a chance of I suppose treating them we have a chance of managing them we have a chance of actually doing something about it and we don't end up in this situation you know maybe like in this tv show animal king where things are almost so 
out of control because people didn't necessarily know what to do. People didn't have the, the tools at the time and they weren't able to, I suppose, break the cycle, break the circuit. And to me, that's what some of this sort of stuff is about as well. It's, it is setting that positive intention. But if we don't know what to do, you can almost tie yourself up in knots a little bit trying to find the solution in some ways. Yes, good way of putting it. And it reminds me of a general principle in psychology that everybody handles things the best way they know how at the time. No one seriously considers using their second best way of doing anything. And so like you say, people are going to have past experiences in their upbringing. It might be trauma experiences. It might be limited opportunities in their current environment. So basically, we're going to be strongly influenced by what's available to us that way in terms of our habits and history and things like that. But as you say, there are tools that we can draw on as well. There are ideas, there are concepts, there are practical tips, if you like, that can be worth trialling. And so that's part of what we've been on about in all of our episodes. There are different kinds of practical tips. There are ideas to help understand the general framework, if you like, or the general area of a topic we're looking at. But then we look to include practical tips. And these are imperfect tools. It's something different. It's something that tends to have been helpful for quite a number of people. A number of things that we would have suggested would be tried and true, like the exposure principle for dealing with phobic anxiety. It's facing feared situations step by step that can help us desensitise to that and get more confidence that we can manage with that situation. That's a fundamental kind of principle, if you like. So there are a number of different tips that tend to be more tried and true, but even then, it's a bit of an art or a craft or guesswork or experimenting to see how any of these tips work. So they're imperfect tools, but hopefully the episodes serve as a kind of recipe, if you like, at times, or even a bit of a smorgasbord that people can pick from some kind of tip. And what works best is what people actively apply. Because when people relate to a particular tip or an idea or strategy and they think, wait a minute, that sounds it might be relevant for me, I'm going to have a go at that. It's when people apply themselves actively, actively applying some kind of technique or strategy, even half well, and even see if it makes a bit of difference, it might make 20% difference, then can you maybe build on that or amplify that or even tweak it in your own way? It's that sense of actively engaging in something. So when people use relaxation techniques or meditation techniques, is it the technique itself that makes the biggest difference? The technique's relevant, but the most important difference is whether people are using it in some active way. And that would apply to all psychological strategies, whether we use it in an active way. So we try and find it, make it a bit of our own, apply it in some way. Does it make a difference? What are the consequences? And if it even works a bit, look to amplify on that, maybe use it in our own way. Well, the thing that really comes to mind for me then, it's one that we've spoken a fair bit on the podcast about before, but it's the idea of the three systems for self-compassion. We've got the drive system, the soothing system, and the threat system. And for example, that's one thing where you can read books on you know, what the three systems do, but unless we really reflect on it from our own individual point of view in terms of, well, okay, maybe I am feeling my drive system's a little bit going overboard at the moment. Well, what can I do about that? It's not as if there's one size fits all model for fixing that. We've almost really got to think in our own individual way. Well, for me, 
what is the balance and what is the balance at the moment? Maybe it's a little bit different from yesterday and last week. It's almost having that conversation with ourselves. But unless we know the, the context, unless we know a little bit about the three systems in general, we can't really have that conversation. And that's one that for me in particular has really come up over the last couple of months, particularly when you know we're, we're a little bit restricted and maybe there's some more demands which make it a little bit harder to lock into our drive system at times. Maybe we need to be a little bit more deliberate about our soothing system. But before getting into the ideas of the three systems, you'd almost just be a little bit more uncontrolled and I, and I feel for myself anyway, maybe oscillating a little bit between you know putting the pedal to the metal and then maybe getting a little bit burnt out. I think if we have a bit more of a, a broader understanding about this sort of stuff, we can control it as we go. We can manage it as we go. It's not as if we're, I suppose, at the mercy of these things. We can be a little bit more proactive in how we manage it. Yes, like yourself, that self-compassion topic struck me as one that I learnt the most from. And uh, you mentioned books. Funny enough, it's with these podcast episodes that I've read more books in the last year than I would have read in the previous <laughs> five years or whatever because sometimes when we covered a topic like self-compassion, I thought I'd better get round to reading, for example, Paul Gilbert's book on self-compassion therapy, which was so helpfully expressed and great detail and in going into it and just it helped me appreciate that much more about this theme behind burnout. And like you mentioned burnout there, that's been the number one topic that different organisations have sought help for. If they've looked out for a speaker or asked me to visit a group or do a Zoom session on a particular topic, burnout has been the main topic that people have asked for help with. And it's because many workers have felt stretched and all of us in our different roles at home as well or as a carer, there are all sorts of roles that people have that could have been extra demanding through a pandemic. But just say take work roles. Yes, often people found it harder to manage the usual demands. So there's our drive system. And the thing is, many people were already feeling somewhat under threat, like you mentioned, our threat system, another thing through, another system through evolution that basically helps us survive. So with all of us through the pandemic, all of us have got our threat system partly activated right from the word go. And that means that if we push ourselves too hard, if we try and drive ourselves too hard or too perfectionistically, or we don't make allowances, as we encouraged in the episode Lightening the Load, for example, then we're going to get that out of balance. We need maybe a bit more of the soothing system. What are we going to do to mark the transition at the end of a workday, for example, to take a little bit of time out and recharge our batteries? Just generally, what are we going to do on the weekends when we're more restricted from our usual physical activities and social leisure? What other ways can we find of soothing? Is it playing music? Is it spending longer cooking a favourite meal? Is it reading for leisure in some kind of ways? Or is it just sometimes letting ourselves just do a number of things that are more leisurely paced? So it's looking at that balance, drive, threat and soothing. And just like when people have had some kind of trauma history... And trauma memories can be triggered so automatically a person's threat system's more activated. So have to think maybe of not having such expectations on one's drive system or looking at different ways of soothing oneself. Certainly through the pandemic, that's something that we've had to consider the balance of those systems. 
And it seems a little while ago now, Dad, but it was the, the drive, soothing and threat, seeking a synergy of systems was the first episode that we spoke about that one. And then I believe strengthening self-compassion, one of the more recent episodes, was another one where that came up as well. So if anyone's interested in that topic and, and wanting to hear a little bit more, please check out those couple of episodes first of all. But, Dad, I suppose the, the three systems for me was one thing that I think was, I suppose, broadly applicable to everyone directly, if that makes sense. But there's been some other topics that I think may have particularly been helpful for your clients and particularly clients who may be experiencing these specific difficulties. But there's been some other episodes which I've found really helpful, even though they haven't necessarily been specific for me. And and I mentioned the depersonalization and dissociation episodes before. And for me, that's one example where I may not necessarily experience dissociation and depersonalization directly. But at the same time, there's certainly things that I can take from that information in terms of, you know, I can certainly relate to a feeling of avoidance at times. I think, you know, you know this as well as anyone growing up with me in my bedroom, how it was as a teenager, Dad. But uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I can't sit here and say to anyone, well, don't be avoidant in that situation when there's been other situations that I have been avoidant in myself. So it just allows you to, I suppose, contextualize some of these things and, as I say, take, I suppose, things from them in terms of recognising that, well, hold on, maybe if I am avoiding at certain times, it may not necessarily lead to dissociation or depersonalization or something like that, but there can be problems that, that develop from that too. Yes, like certainly understanding how the technology of podcasts can help people, including people with specific psychological challenges, I found the episodes on dissociation and depersonalization some of the most enlightening in terms of their impact. And I was struck and very pleasantly surprised by the impact that those episodes had because we would have had at least half a dozen clients contact the practice in the last year or so directly as a result of those episodes for which we've got clinical handouts now as well. But what struck me is the people who got in touch with us that way, they were not only encouraged by hearing of the general principles that we talked about in terms of dissociation and depersonalization. So these are areas I've specialised in clinically for 30 years. So I've always had a bee in my bonnet about that. But there's nothing more helpful than to hear of people's life experience, how a person subjectively experiences these things. So there was an example with a lady who described how with panic attacks, she would experience depersonalization in the way that Sometimes I have the feeling I am not real. I don't exist. Now that's a striking kind of statement and often people won't say that to other people. They won't even say to their family members because they might think that they'll sound mad or it's just too weird to be able to express to someone. You can't hope that anyone will understand that and yet other people can relate. Or as someone else described, he said, I came to believe that the world was a simulation. But when he'd heard the earlier dissociation episode, he described that he realised, wait a minute, it's not just created in my mind, this feeling, it made the issue feel more real. He said it validated things going on in my head. So he referred himself and at the time he came in, he was already the equivalent of several sessions ahead in therapy of where most people are when they present with dissociation because he already understood the framework of it. And with his descriptions and his own experiences, which we weaved into a handout and a later podcast episode on depersonalization in dissociative disorders, 
then he would have added to my understanding, another's understanding, when he described how if he was in a challenging situation, not only if he was anxious, but also if he was bored, he described, well, if I didn't want to be there, I didn't have to be there. And then he'd go into some kind of dissociative experience where he could, in a sense, it's like switching off your frontal lobes, and it's like you're not there. He could be, even in school days, outside a classroom, experiencing himself as though he were not sitting at a desk, but outside the classroom, literally. Now, we can understand how there might be a motivation to do that if you don't want to feel pain. Because, again, as he described, his only association with reality was pain and argument. Well, we can understand these things. So if people have the capacity, as we described in that episode, to use hypnotic mechanisms to, in a sense, not be there, well, why not use them? And then someone else, Ryan, uh, described how it was like he had different versions of himself with different names. He was referring to his experience of dissociative identity disorder. But the generosity with which people described their experiences and allowed us to then report that or relate that back on our podcast episodes, there's some of the richest clinical material, personal material, I've heard in the dissociative disorders field. So we, again, are very appreciative of our clients for that. And many of our clinical handouts in our practice are based on feedback from people, how they've actually subjectively experienced these kind of conditions. Or you mentioned avoidance earlier. Or it could be panic attacks or depression or trauma reactions. And in an earlier episode, both you and I talked of something of our own experiences that overlap with whether it be trauma reactions or depression, because we think that people telling their stories, especially if there's something uplifting about it, because there's been some way you've been able to get by, you've been able to get through or manage or find a way of handling something with a little more ease or hope or comfort or future direction... It's worth telling these stories. They're actually a very important supplement to psychological therapies and interventions because, after all, we all want to belong. We all want to be able to accept ourselves. It's a lot easier to accept our humanity, including our vulnerability and difficulties, if we hear other people's stories that we can relate to. Well, I remember when we were telling those stories, Dad, about a little bit about what we'd gone through ourselves and I probably hadn't realised this at the time, but something that actually what you described just there really highlights to me. But it's, I remember thinking, you know, no one's going to really understand exactly, you know, where I'm coming from and they're not really going to understand, you know, my perspective on this and you can try and relay a little bit. But at the same time, if, if someone like, you know, Jason and Ryan, who you've just described, if they can go through some experiences which are so on the face of it strange and are so different to the people that they would be closest to it in the way that I'm sure many people with dissociation wouldn't speak about it to so many people around them, as you mentioned before, because it is so strange, because it may seem so kind of weird and crazy. Well, for those people, you know, they're not alone in terms of the way that they experience difficulties. And and I think there's an element to which, you know, we may have our own individual set of experiences. We may have our own individual set of circumstances and difficulties that we're facing. But we're not alone in the sense that even if someone, you know, doesn't have a a direct uh, example of of something that they've gone through in the exact same sort of way, I think everyone can almost at least acknowledge a time when, you know, they, they may have felt similar or they may have felt that they, you know, were experiencing some similar sort of challenges. And I remember, you know, there's been times when, you know, you 
you go to people for advice or whatever and, and they almost say something to you in terms of, you know, you, you, might be, you might come to them with a specific problem and they try and relate to it, relate it to a problem that they've gone through. I remember in the past thinking, don't trivialise what I'm going through by thinking, you know, you know it all and you understand it all and all this sort of stuff. But to me, discussing things like dissociation, everything else that we've discussed on the podcast, I think people's default switch is to want to empathise and to want to help and to want to say, hey, look, you know, I understand what you're going through. And to me, you know, that's one of the things that this podcast and talking about things like dissociation, which, as I say, may not necessarily directly affect me as much, but it really does highlight that thing of we're all not alone. And I think we all have this kind of collective intention. Most of the people that I interact with and come across anyway have this collective intention of, of helping people and allowing each other to get through this in the best way that they can. But I think, yeah, as I said, if we don't, I suppose, tackle some of this sort of stuff. If we don't look at maybe even other people's circumstances, we're just going to feel alone and we're just going to feel that what we're dealing with, you know, we're the only ones who are going to understand it. Yes, well, so much comes down to lived experience, doesn't it? And that's one thing that a pandemic does. It puts us all in some ways in the same difficult boat. We might experience it in different ways and different countries have had different challenges, different states have had different challenges, a lot with Melbourne, with lockdown, the most lockdown city in the world. But most people in most countries are going to have had some kind of hardship. But getting back to lived experience, one of the things that strikes me is often if there's a community talk on something, and there was a community talk I was involved in yesterday even, and often there's a distinction made between, say, a professional expert and then people will talk from lived experience. Well, the truth is there's often a lot more overlap than it might (laughs) seem. Like I imagine that... Maybe half of mental health professionals would have gone through some significant challenge in the past and it's sometimes said that some people come through the front door for mental health services and some people come through the back door. It's actually being a therapist that is the one way you can experience therapy without having to be a client. (laughs) So that's that general idea. So in a sense that all of us could be trying to work through different kind of issues or challenges in life, sometimes unconsciously. But the thing is, there used to be so much more stigma. There's so much less stigma now. And one of the things is, as you were saying earlier about mental health being acknowledged as important, I've never known there to be so much importance placed on mental health, including with government policies and funding and discussions about it and highlighting the importance of mental health, the last couple of years has really raised it to a different kind of level. And we know that many people have never sought mental health services before, have in the last year. We know that many people who have had any kind of mental health difficulties and might have added about an extra 30% or so to the challenges that people have faced. Hard to quantify exactly, but a significant increase in distress and significantly more people distressed. And so it's actually taking the stigma out of it because it's recognised that, look, it's very helpful for people to engage in help-seeking behaviour. If they're feeling challenged, it's a skill to have. But looking at the stigma, many years ago, it was about 30 years ago now, I was working in a hospital and I was in a team of about 12 people and we used to sit in weekly meetings every week. And there was another nurse in those meetings and someone that I really respected clinically. I thought she was very competent. And I think that she and I performed very well in that team. And I privately thought to myself, wow, I wonder what our other team members would think sitting around in these chairs 
if they knew that two of us in this group had been hospitalised in a psychiatric hospital at the same time. Now, we might not have been the only ones in that group who'd been hospitalised in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, we happened to be hospitalised the same hospital the same week. So these things maybe are more prevalent than people used to acknowledge. You know what? We never acknowledged to each other that we were in hospital together at that time. It was too soon. At times I looked out for maybe some cue from her whether I might bring it up, but I was probably hesitant. She was clearly hesitant. Maybe it was too soon. It was only a year or two afterwards. And I think that each of us was somewhat keen to establish our professional credibility again, get on our feet and show we could be competent. But I thought, well... Now, this is a very strange coincidence, this one. Here we are, and, and I'd say we we're two of the most high-functioning people on that team in some ways. I know that we had a constructive impact what we were doing with our team-based program services, and yet people would have had no clue that just less than two years earlier, we were both suffering severely with depression. So you can't always judge a book by its cover, and it makes a big difference. It's a huge advance, I think, that there's much less stigma and more people telling their stories, including of mental health struggles and ways they've come through them. It really helps to be uplifting about things. We don't expect everyone to completely overcome every challenge that they've had. We're not talking about that either. But it's accepting being part of the human condition, really. And it does seem sort of strange that now we'd kind of look back and think that that probably enhanced your ability, the both of you as, as clinicians, in terms of having gone through that. I think it was, you know, up until about the 70s, you'd know more about this than me, Dad, but up until about the 70s, studying psychology was very, I suppose, internal in terms of the way that you were learning about things. It was almost as if you, yourself was kind of your, your number one client in some ways. And if you could kind of pick your way through, I suppose, your own, I suppose, analytical uh, framework, then in some ways you could kind of work it out for everyone else. So it's almost strange that it, or it's a bit contradictory in some ways that they would kind of go, well, you have to almost recognise that, you know, everyone goes through this stuff. You almost have to go through some of this sort of stuff yourself and I suppose recognise, you know, what it is and, and all this sort of stuff. But then at the same time, if people do do that in a more explicit sense, then they just didn't seem to uh, want a bar of it. So I think it's a good thing that it has changed. Yes, and it's funny how you say that internal experience being so important, for example, for psychology students. But funnily enough, in that time frame, you mentioned the 1970s, in the field of psychology, people were so concerned about being objective. So this whole emphasis on behavioural therapy and statistics and scientific research. And I think that a lot of psychology went way too much in that direction, way too anxious about being scientific, being objective. So it missed some of the really important things in life, dare I say, a spiritual or a soul dimension in life. And so that's something that's only in recent years being acknowledged more, the importance of a spiritual dimension doesn't have to mean being religious. About 30% of people in Western countries are being spiritual without being religious. Now, you can see what I'm leading up to, can't you, Ryan? We're leading <laughs> up to the topic of synchronicity, one of my favourite topics. Talk of a coincidence of me and that other nurse in the same group at the same time. There's a bit of synchronicity, but hey, 
Let's talk about synchronicity. <laughs> well, I think it actually, it's, it's good timing, Dad. It's almost as if we've chatted about this before the podcast or something. But to me, what uh, what comes up there is is the notion that, you know, you can't be too mechanical with all this sort of stuff in terms of, you know, we, we can talk about it, we can look inwardly, we can develop a list of resources and, and we can develop our own, I suppose, recipe for managing with this sort of stuff. But on some level, I think we do need to tap into something deeper. And that's really been highlighted for me in recent weeks in terms of, you know, I must have sent it to about 15 people because I think it's just one of the best things ever. But there's this meme going around. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's basically it's an eagle kind of, you know, it's on the ground and it's looking very kind of hunched over and, you know, its whole body language is kind of pointed downwards. And and the caption on the meme says, you know, me going on my stupid walk, my stupid physical, my stupid mental health. (laughs) And to me, it's hilarious because there's an element of that in terms of like there was a little while there, I think, for the pandemic, it was sort of like, all right, we really need to get this routine going and we sort of got the routine going and then you know after a period of months of kind of doing the same routine it was sort of like oh I'm over this and hey like I understand you know there's a lot going on and objectively there's a lot that we're all going through and you know there are things that I can do and there's places that you can put your attentional focus and all this sort of stuff but on some level it's almost like you know geez that takes a lot of I suppose, conscious effort all the time to really be on top of that. And to me, that's where something like synchronicity comes in and and spirituality and and some of these, I suppose, deeper themes that we have spoken a bit about before on the podcast because they allow us to tap into that next layer of, I suppose, helping ourselves in a way because it's not, it, it allows us to not have to be so on the ball all the time in terms of, you know, this is how I'm feeling, but what can I do? And, you know, it can become a little bit of a contrived existence in some ways if, you know, if you're not acknowledging how you're really feeling and if you're always trying to, you know, do what you can to feel better. To me, if we can develop, as you say, that soul dimension, whether it be through something like, you know, synchronicity or, you know, sport for me, (laughs) whatever it is, but if we can tap into that, then that just gives so much more of an added layer of benefit beyond the more mechanical stuff about, you know, getting into a routine and, and the three systems and all that sort of stuff that we've spoken about. Yes, and so one of the things that strikes me is that anything that's given people joy over the last couple of years or anything that we've felt motivated to do is something which is likely very worthwhile in our life because these things have stood out as being uplifting, if you like, a bit against the odds. But in terms of, say, getting back to synchronicity and also this podcast, one of the absolute joys to me over the last year or so, after we had a couple of episodes on synchronicity on the podcast, a number of people have got in touch about their stories. Even the most recent person just a couple of days ago, a delightful email that we got from Sandy, and we really appreciate the feedback that we get from people, but about 50 people have got in touch and have told us their synchronicity stories and how they relate to that. And it's a wonderful thing to know because this whole idea of seeing some particular meaning in a coincidence, some uncanny coincidence, and we think, hey, wait a minute, that really seems more than chance. And then there might be different themes that come up or it might give us a certain feeling or encourage us to go in a certain direction or it might even just even feel like an affirmation. I call it a tick from the universe that we're on the right track. And so that's something that to me has been very sustaining over the last year or two, hearing other people tell their synchronicity stories and 
And certainly one of my joys over the last year has been linking up with a group of synchronicity experts around the world, including Bernie Beitman, a psychiatrist from Virginia in the United States. He's organised these people to get together. And we have these Zoom meetings that I find it's really worth getting up at two o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the morning in our time to join with these people. And part of it is encouraging people to tell their story. So it's got a little bit of an overlap with mental health and issues around stigma in that we're encouraging people through these podcasts as well to encourage people to accept if they're having difficulty, if they're struggling, part of that self-compassion aspect. Hey, I'm struggling at the moment. That's part of common humanity. And yet there might be something I can do to improve the situation. Synchronicity stories or when people have some kind of, it might be a really weird experience that's really hard to explain to someone else. Just the notion of feeling that other people have such experiences as well and it can be okay to divulge that. Sometimes picking out a trusted other, but one of the things we had is the difference between psychosis and satori. In other words, satori, like an enlightenment experience, a spiritual experience of which synchronicity can be one type, and that doesn't mean you're going crazy. And we know a number of people have got in touch with us just really appreciating hearing that message. They might have had weird coincidences, but it's heartening to them to know that other people have had those kind of coincidences as well or those kind of experiences, and it can actually mean something useful to people. We can own that as part of our experience. That, that's okay, even if we pick our mark of who we divulge that to. But traditional psychology, and especially mainstream psychiatry, has been way too conservative and limited in acknowledging what we might also call transpersonal or mystical or spiritual experiences and that's a side issue with this podcast we look to encourage that along with people talking about other kinds of experiences that might have left them feeling marginalized otherwise well i think that is such a heartening change that has come out of recent times that shift from looking at vulnerability as weakness to looking at it as strength and to me, you know, there's no one who highlights this better than he's just about my man at the moment. He's my favourite person at the moment. Dad, I've been chewing your ear off him, about him for years. But Tyson Fury, the, uh, the heavyweight boxer who on the weekend, you know, basically became the best, in my opinion anyway, I know it's not, a, it's not a boxing podcast, but I'll indulge myself for a moment, became just one of the, if not the best modern boxer in terms of the heavyweights. And when he beat Deontay Wilder, it was the third rematch. You know, these guys have just had these battles now for years and when he won this fight huge fight the whole world watching he said this is for all the people who suffer with mental health problems i did that for you if i can come back from where i came from you can too so get back up let's do this together as a team you just think he's a heavyweight boxer of the world who's talking about things in those contexts in terms you know come here you just feel like he's you know, going to put his big seven-foot arms around you and give you a big hug sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you know, this guy is, is no less masculine than anyone else who's come before him. He's the heavyweight champion of the world and he's beaten everyone he's come up against. But he's able to talk about this stuff in a way that is so, I suppose, strong, but it doesn't shy away from the vulnerability of it. You know, he was, I believe, driving a car at 190 miles an hour, basically ready to kill himself, and he heard a voice which sort of changed everything from there. But, but he's someone who's now become such a champion for mental health. And I think such a, a 
good example of you know the way the world has changed and is changing. I, I don't think Tyson Fury could have done or could have been the person that he is sort of 15 years ago, but he is now. And I'll tell you what, there's not one interview out there that exists where he's not just spitting wisdom because he's brilliant and he's, uh, as I say, he's an impressive boxer, but he's even more impressive, I think, his attitudes towards mental health and accepting his vulnerabilities because, hey, who's going to tell him? <laughs> you know, who's going to tell him, oh, you know, you're weak in some ways. So for him to be the guy to kind of break the circuit or at least be a symptom of the circuit being broken, yeah, oh, I love him for that, Dad. That's really interesting and uh, and I've been struck by what you've said about Tyson Fury in the past because it's a bit like you can't judge a book by its cover. I saw a photo on a back page of a newspaper recently of Tyson Fury about a nanosecond after he'd knocked out his opponent and he looked like the meanest, <laughs> biggest monster of a mongrel you'd ever see. He looked like a thug. But then as you describe, he's got this complete other dimension to him. Well, of course you're going to look mean and a bit like a thug in a ring. That's what you meant to do. That's part of the role, isn't it? To be intimidating and aggressive and forceful. That's part of boxing. But it's very interesting that he has this other dimension to him and he's trying to get across such an uplifting message to other people about their mental health. But what a wonderful contrast and blended message about combining vulnerability and strength. And yeah, you know, he's, he's someone, you know, his brothers were boxers, his dad was a boxer, you know, I think he could box from, you know, the time he was this small, so it's, you know, I'd, it's not as if he would have grown up in a, a real culture of that sort of thing on the face of it, I guess, so yeah, I've really been enjoying that, Dad, but I suppose that's, uh, that's another thing that I've got out of the podcast in some ways, in terms of, it contextualises a little bit some things that we come across in, in everyday life, and you know, I think of a tweet that I saw recently that uh, I think really well related to an episode that we did recently on gaining with the Gooners. And uh, to me, this just sums things up so well. And it's an example, I think, of how when, you know, we go through a podcast episode, it can just poke its head up at just the most random times where you just think that's such a you know, bit of synchronicity in some ways. But having the extra understanding that we've been able to gain through the podcast, I think enhances you know, the observation in some ways. And so I saw this tweet recently from Annabelle Crabb from ABC, ABC journalist, brilliant ABC journalist. And she said, pleased to be coming out of lockdown, but simultaneously gripped by a deep conviction that I never, ever want to do anything ever again, ever. Is this just me? And I, I read that and I thought, oh, Annabelle, you are preaching to the choir in terms of, you know, to me, we've had so much tamas in the last little while. And that's where doing that episode where, you know, we look at kind of, I suppose, things a little bit differently. And, and for us in that episode, it was looking at the three gunas that come out of Hindu philosophy and Indian philosophy. Well, I read that tweet and I said, oh, you know, Annabelle, that's, to me, that just represents so much tamas. And I completely understand where you're coming from. And, and you know, in, in my own way, I was kind of like, hey, I'm going through a little bit a little bit of that too and you know what Rajas can I introduce into it sort of thing. So I think going through the episodes and and doing the topics that we have done it just comes up at, at different little times and and you know you'd know this sort of being in the mental health field for as long as you have but mental health is just absolutely everywhere and I think the more that we can understand about it the more that we can feel connected to others out there who who we can recognize something of our own experience in the way that they come across. Yes, I think some of the most profound topics are the ones that, in a sense, most people could relate to in some way 
as well as having some more specifics to them. And you were mentioning earlier about Tyson Fury being someone that you really look up to in terms of combining vulnerability and strength. Well, to me, one person I really look up to that way is Lucy Hone, who was our first guest in the podcast and who talked about grief. And Lucy is such a humane, articulate, knowledgeable, uplifting person in talking about grief, but she doesn't gloss over the pain of experience either. And actually some of the things that she was talking about in terms of grief, I thought, had some overlap with people dealing with the pandemic as well. More obviously, if people have lost loved ones or have lost jobs or have lost a sense of security even in different kind of ways, there are many losses that people might have experienced or potential losses. But it can be that much more challenging when people have had a painful loss such as losing one's teenage daughter, as Lucy described. And this was following on from the Christchurch earthquakes when there'd been a lot of loss associated with that and Lucy was part of that community and learned a lot from her own and other people's experiences there. But I come back to something you started with about where we pay attention. And I was struck by how that was such an important theme that Lucy was raising as well, that people might not have any choice about the loss itself but we can choose how we respond to it or what we pay attention to, how we deal with things afterwards. And Lucy emphasised the importance of having an active approach of dealing with grief. And part of that can also include that bereavement is something to be shared, the importance of our connection with other people. Now, this is also very relevant to the pandemic in other kind of ways. But as human beings, we're herd animals, it's so important to have that kind of connection with others. And it doesn't mean that someone has to do something to fix our situation. Actually, modern psychology used to be hopeless at dealing with grief because cognitive behavioural therapy is looking at what interventions can we use? What can we do to help alleviate this person's suffering? Well, sometimes you've just got to go through suffering. But it makes a big difference if it's shared there's social supports you can draw on. But part of what's important for psychological health, as well as we talked about with self-compassion, is acknowledging when we're struggling. And of course, we're not just going to be struggling, we're going to be really suffering if we've experienced profound loss. And it's part of the human condition. As Robert Lay describes, a CBT therapist, he says that a tragic view of life is not incompatible with positive psychology. Because, well, let's start off, I'm going to die, you're going to die, everyone close to us is going to die. Now, that's, that's tragic enough in itself. And then bad things happen, including losing loved ones, including going through a pandemic, including losing jobs or security in different kind of ways. They are truly challenging things that happen. And yet, there are things that make life worth living. And a lot of those things that make life worth living do tend to involve connections with other people also finding some of the best in us like character strengths and how can we act on our character strengths what can we do that are worthwhile things to do that benefit other people whilst drawing on our creativity and our positive attributes there are some things that are fundamental that help make life worthwhile but in the meantime there's sometimes little things a little uplifting thing it might have been a meme that someone shared or a whatsapp comment or a phone call or even a favourite TV show we came across or cooking a pleasant meal or 
For me, a joy recently has been starting with early morning swimming. Used to think it was too cold. Now I find it's just uplifting to start off the day like that. So just finding little things that can give us a boost as well, that's partly where we pay attention. And that was part of Lucy's message around dealing with loss and grief. Yeah, well, as you say, it was just incredible to speak with Lucy and I always find it so uplifting to even just listen to people like that, just to talk to someone like that. And I suppose through osmosis, in some ways, you've almost got no choice but to pick up a few things. And, and to me, it's almost, in many ways, one of the central themes that I've personally found from the podcast. And just, I suppose just to let everyone in and, and let you in, Dad, on, I suppose, yeah, how I've experienced the podcast in some ways. And, and we've had a conversation before off air about... You know, when you learn some of this sort of stuff, it's almost like you've got a choice, you know. You can either kind of ignore it and and sort of do nothing about it or you can really click into that time. And to me, it, you know, Lucy's such a, a perfect example of that, of having an active approach of choosing the path that we want to and, and feeling that we have some more choice in that. But that's kind of like with the podcast in some ways. And just to, to illustrate that, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about, you know, how, how I developed a mantra. And this is a... I'm looking forward to hearing yeah, this. Yeah, so it's you know, a little mantra I use sometimes. And basically it was when I was at university and I'd just moved up to uni and, you know, come from Geelong, moved up to Canberra, didn't know one person, moved on to the residence I was living at. And on that first afternoon, I was sitting in my bedroom looking out onto the knoll, we called it, this sort of shared uh, communal area where everyone was congregating for that first day. And as I said, didn't know anyone. And I looked out my window and I thought, who are you going to be, Rowan? Who are you going to be? You're going to be someone who's just going to sit in here and you're just going to be isolated and you're going to isolate yourself. You're going to go out there. You're going to find the first people that look interesting to speak to and you're going to start a conversation with them. And I think to some degree, for me anyway, that's kind of a little bit what this podcast has been in terms of, I think once you learn some of this sort of stuff and and once you go through it and once you have an understanding from your own individual point of view, well, it comes back to that thing of, you know, who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? You're going to be someone who sits here and feels miserable for yourself and doesn't accept anything that's going on and doesn't look at what you can do in the situation and doesn't try and find some positive and doesn't try and find some way to progress forward or you're going to recognise all the things that you're currently not doing and you're just going to sit here feeling sorry for yourself. Who are you going to be? And for me, there's just about nothing more motivating than that. But I think... Without going through this sort of stuff, in terms of arming yourself, well, you know, it gives you so much choice in terms of who you are going to be if you do have the tools at your disposal. Oh, I really like that. I've never heard of someone actually having that as a mantra, but it makes perfect sense. And one of the things I really like about that is that gets at an essence of a message about human potential. As you say, we're shaped so much by things that happened in the past, our families, our habits, things that happened to us. They have an important impact on shaping things for us, but it doesn't determine where we're at. Where we're at is going to depend far more on where we direct our energy. So things that motivate us from within, that's the character strengths again, what we pay attention to, what we focus on, what we put effort into. 
And that came up recently, as you say, with the gunas that related to certain scientific principles, some of the Newtonian laws. You know, we're going to keep on going in the same direction with inertia unless we do something, force equals mass times acceleration, to change it, to shift our path. So it's partly how we shift our path. And the most recent episode we did on quantum physics it might seem like it's not related to psychology, but it's just about what you said then. It's about human potential. We talked about a principle of superposition. We could be here, we could be there, we could be somewhere else, we could be focusing on this, we could be focusing on that. Where we put our attention and then our effort and follow through with that, that is going to shape our future. What we're doing now, the direction we're going in, that's going to shape what happens the next five minutes, the next day, five years' time, in a sense more than anything else. So I really like that line, that's about potential. We have choices we can make a difference. Absolutely. And I suppose, Dad, just before we go to pick up on on something that you said before, we have received so many messages from people who have just been so generous in what they've given to us, in terms of what they've shared with us, uh, in terms of even the length of some of the messages that people have gone to. You know, there's few better feelings out there, Dad, than you and me sort of forwarding a message onto each other and, and being able to respond to it and, and receiving that is, is honestly been it's one of the highlights of the last last little while. So, you know, thank you to absolutely everyone who's done that. And I will, I will actually mention a couple because, Dad, as you said, there's, you know, there's been a few, but, uh, but a few in particular have, have gotten onto us a couple of times and, and just said some lovely things. So I will say a big thank you to Beryl, to Kath, to Peter, to Katie, to Craig, to Rowan, the other Rowan, great name fella, <laughs> to Chelsea, to Jessica and to Jacob. They're just some people who have gotten in touch a, a couple of times with some longer messages with some, some really personal stuff that, that Dad, you and I find so uplifting to, to come across, to, to be sent. And, and so we really do encourage anyone out there, if you've got any remarks, any topic suggestions that you want us to do, any feedback at all, feel free to send it through. We've got the, uh, the email address at podcast at chrismackey.com.au. And Dad and I are both accessible on that email. And Dad, I, I guess the only other thing to say is thank you so much for the last 50 episodes. I, I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into in terms of when we started this, but I can honestly say I've, I've enjoyed it so much more than I thought I would have. And yeah, I've gotten more out of it and I think it's, it's brought you and I closer together than I ever conceptualised we would be. So I'm, I'm so happy that that's been a thing and, and thank you so much. Thank you, Rowan. That's just so delightful to hear and it's been an absolute joy to me. The main joy over the last year and a half has been doing this podcast with you. And um, and so, yeah, didn't know it would necessarily turn out that way. I can remember back to one of the early episodes we did on conflict. Uh-oh. I thought, I don't know if we're <laughs> going to survive this episode. I don't know if we're going to end up in the same building. But somehow we did and we've, um, we've followed through. So if it's okay, I'd just like to leave with a message about post-traumatic growth. This is something that was highlighted by Lucy Hone. But again, we've all been in a challenging situation with the pandemic. So we might reflect on, have we experienced any of these five different aspects or dimensions of post-traumatic growth when you go through a challenging situation but something comes out of it? Have we appreciated our strength or resilience further in some way with how we've handled the last year and a half? Do we have some level of greater gratitude or appreciation 
for things that make life worthwhile, even if it's things that we've been restricted from doing, like, say, spending time with friends or overseas travel, but do we appreciate some of those things more or the thought of being able to do them? Do we feel more grateful for some things? Do we have an improved or deepened relationship with at least some others? Is there a way that we have some kind of greater sense of meaning or even spiritual awareness or sense of what's most important to us in life? Has something enhanced our sense of meaning? And finally, are there some kinds of new possibilities that have come up from the experience of the pandemic? And Rowan, certainly for me, the most satisfying new possibility has been starting a podcast with you and seeing how that can go. It's just an absolute joy of being able to do something like this with your son. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something I will always cherish. Thank you. Oh, thank you as well, Dad. And, and you know, everyone out there who is listening to this, yeah, as well, you know, we've gotten so much from every one of you listeners out there who, as I say, whether you've gotten on to us or not, uh, just seen that someone has listened, seen the numbers that are that come through for the podcast episodes has, has been so uplifting and, and yeah, as you say, a, a real joy. We don't really have too many uh, resources to put up on the the page for today, Dad. We might even have to go over and just find up some goodies just to put something up there. But uh, but we do have the, the website for the podcast at psychspeels.com.au. Thank you so much again, everyone out there. Thank you so much, Dad, for 50 episodes. And uh, here's to many more, eh? <laughs> yes, we'll be kicking on. Thank you, Rowan.